You're listening to audio from Northway Church. For more information about Northway and additional audio resources, please visit northwaychurch.com. Well, great to see you, Northway Church. It's a joy to be with you this Sunday to finish our series on the book of Jonah. I'm Brady Goodwin. I'm one of the pastors at Northway, and um, I want to invite you to turn with me to Jonah chapter 4. We'll be looking this evening at Jonah 4, verses 1 through 11. We'll begin by reading this passage. So um, give you a minute to find it, and we'll, we'll read this. This is Jonah 4, starting in verse 1. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. And he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love, and relenting from disaster. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. And the Lord said, do you do well to be angry? Jonah went out of the city and sat to the east of the city and made a booth for himself there. He sat under it in the shade till he should see what would become of the city. Now the Lord God appointed a plant and made it to come up over Jonah that it might be a shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. So Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. But when dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant so that it withered. When the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind, and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint. And he asked that he might die and said, it is better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, do you do well to be angry for the plant? And he said, Yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. And the Lord said, you pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. And should not I pity Nineveh, that great city, in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left, and also much cattle. This is the word of the Lord. A few questions for us as we begin our time this evening. What does it mean when life doesn't go our way? When our desires remain unfulfilled? when what we fear is realized? How do you usually respond in such situations? What do you feel? What do you do? 
What does it mean when our response to our unmet longings or realized fear is anger or despair? When we experience a step-by-step descent to the doorways of anxiety or depression. Where is God in all of this? What does he think about such circumstances? What role does he play in the disappointments of our lives? And perhaps most important for us, how do these answers, how do they relate to the heart and the mission of our God? The answer to these questions is what forms the subject of Jonah 4, 1 through 11. As we look at this text further this evening, we're going to see the following two truths on display. The first is this, a heart distressed at God's work is a heart opposed to God's purposes. A heart distressed at God's work is a heart that's opposed to his purposes. The second is that in Christ, God redeems rebellious hearts and he restores us to his image and he reorients us to his mission. So these two truths, this will be the focus of what we do together this evening. So let's jump in. Let's look back with me again at verse one as we look at how a heart distressed by God's work is a heart opposed to God's purposes. Verse one says this, it displeased Jonah exceedingly and he was angry. What displeased Jonah? We always want to look at the context, and for that, we we go one verse before to Jonah 3, verse 10, and look with me. When God saw what they did, the Ninevites, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. Verse 310 and verse 41 form a wordplay in Hebrew. Let me give you the approximation. You'll understand our English translation differs, but there's one word for evil way, there's one word for disaster, and there's one word for displeased between these two verses. And so the effect would be something like this. The Ninevites turned from their evil. God relented of his evil that he said he would do to them, but this was a great evil to Jonah. It was an evil to him. And so let's recap to give us some sense of why this response would be so significant. You remember the beginning of the book of Jonah. God calls out to Jonah, go and tell Nineveh. Go call out to them because their evil has come up to me. But because Jonah hated the Ninevites, he resists that call and instead goes 2,500 miles the opposite direction from where he was called to go. He gets swallowed by a fish. He prays for deliverance. God delivers him. And then God calls him again to go to Nineveh. And this time, finally, Jonah goes. And in response, we might think that upon hearing of the Ninevites' repentance, Jonah wouldn't be displeased, but that he would actually be joyful. We would expect him to be pleased. And in fact, this is the way that the Jesus Storybook Bible version of Jonah ends. Jonah was really happy. The the Ninevites repented and everything was great. But this isn't how Jonah ends 
in the scriptures. Jonah's furious. And this ending is so surprising. It defies our expectations for what this story looked like it was going, how it looked like it was going to end up. These things were great evils to Jonah. And he burned. That's another way that the Hebrew describes anger. It's not just a response, but it's this whole personed reality. He burned. And curiously, from this passage, we can construct a biblical definition of anger. We could see anger as this, a whole personed, active response against perceived evil. It's what we do when we think something evil has befallen us. And we see this with Jonah. It was evil to Jonah. He responded, and it wasn't just a part of him. It was all of him. And we've got to ask the question, why was Jonah angry? We look at verses two and three, and we see further what's underneath his response. Jonah prayed to the Lord, and he said, O Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? That's why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. I knew that you were a gracious God. I knew that you were merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Now, O Lord, just kill me. Take my life away from me because it's better for me to die than to live. Finally, we get the answer to why Jonah ran away at the beginning of the narrative. We don't know until we get to this point. When Jonah says, I didn't want to go to Nineveh because I knew that you would forgive them. I didn't want to go to them because I knew that you would show mercy. And in fact, you would show the same kind of mercy that you would show to Israel. He quotes Exodus 34, which was a declaration of God's mercy, how he would be slow to anger, full of steadfast love and compassion, but in the context that he would be full of mercy towards the people of Israel. And he turns it on God's face and uses it as an insult. And he says, this is supposed to be for us, not for them. Jonah's response shows us two competing desires. The first is a desire for judgment on Nineveh. The second is a desire for safety from Nineveh. We have to do a little bit of thinking to see how that connects, but let's consider it together. If God were to show judgment on Nineveh, Israel's enemies, this would lead to safety. But if God were to show mercy upon Nineveh, in Jonah's eyes, this would lead to great danger. One commentator put it this way, the same mercy that inspired Jonah's praise when he was saved from the fish is what provokes his complaint when Nineveh was saved. All because it meant, in his eyes, Israel's doom. But you see, Jonah's desires were backwards. They were disordered. Jonah's desires weren't evil. It wasn't wrong for him to desire judgment against sin. It's not wrong for him to desire mercy and protection and safety, but they were self-focused. They were more about him than they were about the glory of God. They centered on what would result for Jonah's good rather than what would exalt the name of the Lord. This is always one of those things where we come back and think about anger, I'll get asked this question frequently. How do you know if my anger is righteous? And I always say two questions. Does your anger reflect the heart of God? 
In this instance, it might. Jonah is concerned about judgment over sin. God is concerned about judgment over sin. But the second question is usually more revealing. Is this anger about your protection, your glory, or God's fame and God's glory? And here we see very clearly, this is about Jonah. Jonah's emotional response reveals what he treasures in his heart. And this is because throughout scripture, our emotions and how they're depicted reflect what we value. And in this instance, the heart of anger is unmet desire. Jonah wants judgment and he wants protection and safety. And so in great irony, and in fact, quite a surprise, God, Jonah actually stands against God. He stands against God in his response because in his heart, he is committed to himself first and God second. Jonah's story illustrates a rather profound truth. And we see this in what happens through verses two and three. Jonah's circumstance, his opposition to God's actions, they actually produce a type of despair in his life. And so not only does it provide a biblical understanding of anger, it gives us a case study of despair. It gives us a case study of the descent that often happens in one's heart that leads to depression even. Jonah's response begins with anger, but it quickly transitions to despair. He says, take my life from me. It's better for me to die than to live. And think about what he's saying. It's better for me to die than to live with a God who's merciful to people who I don't want you to show mercy. It's so significant to Jonah that it leads him to a place of utmost despair. But what is despair? An intense, hopeless sadness that ultimately reflects a self-willed, self-exalting heart's disapproval of one's circumstances. A pastor and counselor, John Henderson, says that this is what happens when a prideful heart protests loss and pain. That's despair. How do we know that Jonah's emotions reflect despair and not just a normal response to loss? Look at the intensity. He asks to die. He says, it would be better for me to lose my life than to live with you showing mercy in this way. It shows us the nature of his desire. His response is irrational. He won't listen. It doesn't make any sense for him to say this. It's blinding and all-consuming. He can't see anything else. And for him, there's no way out. It's better to just end it. But in verse four, God shows us just how masterful a counselor he is because he asks really good questions. Look at what he says. Jonah, do you do well to be angry? In essence, God is asking Jonah, is it right for you to feel this way? Is it right for you to be angry in such a way in response to what I've done. God doesn't meet Jonah's anger head on the way that a lot of us would do, nor does he flinch with fear at the way Jonah despairs in his plea for death. Instead, he goes right to the heart. Is it right for you to feel this way? Is this right? I think at this point, it's helpful for us to take a step back and to ask this question. We're a lot like Jonah, aren't we? I know I'm a lot like Jonah, and I have a hunch that you might be as well. The book of Jonah is really about us. The book of Jonah is meant to show us a mirror into our own hearts, 
It's one of the reasons why it ends so suddenly at the end of chapter four, without resolution, without understanding what Jonah actually does. It's because it's meant to continue a narrative right into our own lives. It's not just a true story about a reluctant prophet swallowed by a giant fish, but it's also a story that's meant to show us something of what we are like. And so what are we like? We're opposed to God. I don't know if you've realized this. We stand opposed to God. We don't think we stand in opposition to God. Prideful people never think they're proud. But we stand in opposition to God, and it shows up every time our disgust, our terror, or our despair arises at what happens in our lives and what God has done. So we can take a very near example, just like Jonah. Sometimes we don't really want other people to experience the mercy of God through Christ. This is especially true when those people differ from us in some way, whether that's cultural, ethnic, political, religious. Where there are differences, often we do not want to see God's mercy to be shown in the same way it's been shown to us. There's a lot of other ways that we can understand our opposition to God. Maybe you got an email from your boss on Friday, said, hey, I want to catch a few minutes with you on Monday, period, end of message. It's 4.40 on Sunday, and you've been thinking about that ever since you got that email, because there's something in you that's worried. You don't know what's going to happen. You don't know why he or she wants to meet with you, but you're certain it's probably not for a good reason. And by this point, you've probably worried yourself into applying for three or four other jobs. (laughs) But what are we called to do in such situations? Jesus tells us in Matthew 6, don't be anxious. God knows what you need. Trust him. Maybe it's you longing for a spouse, for a child, and you're angered every time you hear about someone who's engaged or who finds out they're pregnant. And there's something in you that says that's not right. They don't deserve that. They didn't go through what I've gone through. We have to come back and ask this question, who is it that gives children? Scripture would say that children are a heritage from the Lord. They're from him. So who are we really angry with? Third example, you've worked on a project together with a coworker. She gets promoted instead of you. And it's totally out of left field. We forget in those moments how Scripture would teach us in Psalm 145 that he does good to all and his mercy is over all that he has made. Or perhaps you stand in a response of despair or fear because someone who has harmed you, perhaps even grievously, appears to have repented and you can't imagine forgiving them for what they've done. You just can't wrap your mind around the risk or the danger. And instead of entrusting ourselves to the one who judges justly, we turn inward, forgetting the truth that he heals the brokenhearted and he binds up our wounds. 
And then lastly, perhaps in the face of your own sexual brokenness, whether a struggle with pornography, whether the experience of same-sex attraction and all you can think about is if only I could be free, if only I could struggle with something else, why did God have to let me be this way? And in those moments, we're forgetting the truth of Psalm 139. But in his book, he has written every one of them, the days that were formed for me when as yet there was none of them. Does God robotically expect us to respond to difficulties with just, it's okay, it doesn't matter, not in the slightest. He has created us as responsive creatures who interact with our world. We are not robotic, but we are human. So is there room for grief and sadness at the face of loss? Of course. But does he desire us to respond with faith and with obedience? It might go against our conventions, but the answer is yes. He does expect and he does desire us to respond to our circumstances, even deep brokenness and sorrow with faith. And when we refuse, we reveal our opposition to God and it looks just like Jonah's heart. You guys that know me know that I love David Pallison, so it's no surprise that I would quote David Pallison. He wrote an article a few years back called Anger at God, and he says this, it makes no sense to bite the hand that feeds you, to hate the father who gives and sustains life. He is good and he does good. He is compassionate, gracious, patient, full of loving kindness and faithfulness. He freely forgives His mercies are new every morning, but we instinctively hate him anyways because he insists on one thing. Listen to me. There is no point where the scriptures promise us that God will satisfy the sinfully held desires of our hearts. There's no place where he promises an escape from difficulty or suffering And yet there is also no place where he will ever be convicted of wrongdoing against us. There is never a time where you can look at the scriptures and say, he has promised one thing, but done another, and he is wicked and evil and has done evil to me. But when we fall prey to such thinking, we follow the heart of Jonah instead of the heart of God. But here's the beautiful news. God is about redeeming rebellious hearts. He's about redeeming rebellious hearts, yours and mine. Which brings us to the second truth for our time together this evening, which is this, that in Christ, God redeems rebellious hearts. He restores us to his image and he reorients us to his mission. Look with me at verse five. Jonah went out of the city and sat to the east of the city and made a booth for himself there. He sat under it in the shade till he should see what would become of the city. So the second half of the narrative goes deeper into Jonah's heart condition. And I want us to notice three things about how he responds. The first is that he doesn't actually answer God's question in verse four. He just walks away. Have you ever done that? Never, I know. It's never happened. He just leaves. He doesn't answer it but he just walks away. Second, he goes east. 
which to the readers of Jonah at the time it was written, always was symbolic for moving away from God's presence. If you were in Israel and Judea, to go east is to go away from God's place. And he goes east to the city, out of the city. And it's a way of signifying not all is right in Jonah's heart. Third, he made a booth for himself. Not only did he turn away from God's presence, he turned toward self-reliance in constructing a shelter for himself. And there's further irony because the language is, is the language of booths. This is the kind of tent that would have been constructed for God's people when they were in the, the wilderness after the Exodus as they awaited to enter the promised land. And so Jonah makes a, makes a tent for himself as if he's some martyr suffering for what was right and God is obligated to do what he's asked. It's a total pity party. Jonah still thinks God might change his mind, which demonstrates just how deep this self-willed streak runs in his heart. We don't see it necessarily, but what's happening is he's wading deeper and deeper into a pool of anger and resentment and bitterness. But look at what God does. Three things that he does in response to Jonah. The first is that he shows mercy that overwhelms Jonah's idolatry. Verse six, the Lord God appointed a plant and made it come up over Jonah that it might be a shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. So Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. Just like with the fish, God appoints a plant for Jonah. It shows us a couple of things. One, this must have been a pretty meager tent if a plant would have been better. But I also want you to see how even though Jonah sought to rely on himself, God still cared for him. He still showed mercy. And either way, whatever happened, Jonah loved this plant. He just loved it. Um, and it must have been, I mean, I, I took a you know, little bit of research to try to figure out what kind of plant this was and it really isn't super impressive. It's the kind of plant that can grow into a small tree, but is mostly a shrub. But Jonah loved it. We know that he loved it because the text says he was exceedingly happy. And it's the same kind of language that's used to describe his exceeding displeasure at Nineveh's repentance and God's mercy. Just as he was exceedingly angry, revealing the sinful nature of his desires, there's a little clue in the language that maybe his joy is not so rightly placed. His desires are still self-centered, but he was satisfied. And in fact, he was overjoyed. And so he slept easy because he believed that God finally showed concern for him through the plant. Now, some of us, can relate. We've experienced what you might call the dew of blessing. We've had something really good happen to us, that new house, that new apartment, that new job, that new relationship, some new circumstance that has filled our hearts with such happiness that we feel like we're floating off the ground. And it's not to say that there isn't something good and to be celebrated about such circumstances, but there's a little bit of a warning here. That those things are not meant to help, they're not meant to take our vision away from the love and grace of God. There's a kind of subtle deception that can occur in such situations, which is namely the belief that God is for our temporal happiness chiefly of all. And that such circumstances either confirm 
or contrast his favor in our lives. But there's a lot of times, like with Jonah, that God shows us what we really want. He gives us what we really want because he wants to show us what we truly need. The second thing I want us to see is how God's discipline confronts Jonah's pride. Look at verse seven. When dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant so that it withered. When the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint and he asked that he might die and said, it is better for me to die than to live. God appoints the worm just like he appoints the plant. He's sovereign here as well. He sends the worm in judgment. He uses military language. He, the worm attacks the plant. It's purposeful, but it's really attacking Jonah's love of comfort. He also appoints a scorching east wind, which is probably the kind of wind that just cuts right to the core of whatever strength Jonah had. It was hot. As the, as the day went on, the sun rose started to beat down upon him. In all of this, God is showing Jonah what real judgment is like, and no surprise, Jonah hates it. But what's interesting is that when he asks to die a second time, he's not asking God. In verse two, he prays to the Lord and says, I'd rather die than to live with your mercy towards other people. But in this passage here, it actually says something to the effect of, he turned to his soul and said, let me die. He's gone inward and inward and inward. When we turn away from God, we have no other recourse than to turn to ourselves. The only issue is that when the problem is us, the solution cannot be found within. Have you guys ever watched little boys try to put on socks? They're fierce, fiercely independent. Don't touch me. Don't help me. I can do this. Three seconds later, daddy, I need help. Because they don't know what they're doing. There's something similar that's going on in this kind of response. Jonah thinks the answer's in himself. It's not. And when he looks within, all he finds is nothing. You guys might be reading this and you might be thinking, why did God put Jonah through this? Why did he give him what he wants and then take it away? What is he doing? And this shows us the third thing about God's response is that God's wisdom exposes Jonah's folly. Starting in verse nine, God says to Jonah, do you do well to be angry for the plant? And he said, yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. As before, God probes Jonah's heart, and this time Jonah actually answers. But what he says is absurd. He is so consumed with himself that all he can muster is, yes, my anger, my despair over this plant is justified, so much so that it's worth dying over. But now the twist in the story comes in. In verse 10, God says to Jonah, you pity this plant, you didn't labor for it, you didn't make it grow. It came into being in a night and perished in a night. And should I not also pity Nineveh? There's 120,000 people, Jonah, that don't know their right hand from their left. They're walking through life blind. Should I not care for them? You've seen this. Did you notice what God did? 
he exposes Jonah's self-centeredness. He says, don't you see, Jonah, you care more about this plant, but these people are worth far more. Your desires, they're misguided, but they're actually really small. They're really thin. They're really shallow and compared to what I'm doing. If you could see the fullness of my love, you wouldn't feel this way. You'd understand why I've done what I've done. And what's most interesting, as I mentioned before, is that this book does not record Jonah's response. And that's the point. This book is for us. This book's not just to tell a historical account only, but it's for us. It's for us to read ourselves into this narrative. We have to consider where we fit into this story. We've given the tagline to this sermon series, God as he is, us as we are. Part of the reason for that is that we have to learn to see ourselves in the story of Jonah because the story of Jonah is about us. Not only do we oppose God in our lives, but his op- our opposition to him blinds us. It blinds us from seeing his purposes. And if you don't believe you struggle with opposition to God, are you really ready to say that you have never had a Jonah moment? That you have never struggled with intense anger over something that you felt worth was worth fighting for, but was really about you? You've never seethed with judgment when someone that you believe needed correction or accountability or discipline seemed to escape the consequences of their actions. You've never despaired at the thought of losing something that you loved so dearly that you'd rather be dead than to go without it. These are the kinds of things that blind us. They turn the focus back on us and away from what God is doing in the world. And what is God doing in the world? He's bringing redemption. He's bringing restoration. What keeps us from joining him on this mission? It's our blindness, our self-centeredness, our sin. What's the only thing that can actually bring hope, restoration, change, to reorient us to God's mission? We have to be able to see and believe in the greater Jonah who has come for us. There's an episode in the book of Matthew, chapter 12. Pharisees and scribes are talking to Jesus and they say to him, teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. But he answered them, an evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and behold, something greater than Jonah is here. Remember the point that we mentioned a moment ago. In Christ, God redeems rebellious hearts. He restores us to his image and he reorients us to his mission. What does this mean? First, redemption. Jesus did what Jonah couldn't and wouldn't. 
which was to actually fulfill God's calling with faith. Rather than a fish, Jesus descended into the grave. But like Jonah, only to be spit out three days later because death was unable to hold him. Jesus perfectly fulfills the word given to Israel in Isaiah 49, 6, that I will make you as a light to the nations that my salvation may reach the ends of the earth. This is what it means that in Christ, God redeems rebellious hearts is that he saves them. And that through Jesus, he does what Jonah couldn't do and what we can't do, which is to save ourselves. Second, restoration. In Colossians 1, Jesus is spoken of as the one who has delivered us from the domain of darkness and has transferred us into the kingdom of the Father's beloved Son. It's only in Christ that you and I can actually be freed of the kinds of heart responses that characterize Jonah and that characterize us. That opposition that anger, that despair, it is pointing to something significant. Those responses show us what we value as important and what we need is to see that there is a greater treasure, a greater hope that actually will satisfy us in the ways that none of those things ever could. This is what it means that Jesus brings restoration. But third, Jesus reorients us. He reorients us to his mission. What happens when we are focused on the things that we don't have? We're not paying attention to what God is doing in the world. And for Jesus to redeem us and to restore us also means that, it, that he reorients us. He lifts our eyes from our own problems and difficulties, but what's amazing is that he cares about those things as well. But he lifts our eyes and he places them on something of even more significance, which is his mission to bring salvation. It's his purposes in the world to see men and women become disciples of Jesus Christ, that they would come to know him and be instructed in him. This all, uh, um, as an aside, this actually helps to answer the questions that we asked at the beginning. In response to the disappointment and difficulties that we face in our lives, we actually learn to look to the one who has addressed the most fundamental problems so that we can learn to trust him by faith in the smaller ones. And as a result, we start to learn to steward our struggles for his greater purposes. This last month has been obviously one of the most unusual periods of time in the life of our church. I've been a part of this church for close to 10 years. And I cannot say that I was expecting for a tornado to happen. I mean, we expect tornadoes to happen, right? Texas and all. But we don't expect it to touch our lives. And there can be a part of us that responds in a way that says, why is this happening? And it can lead us to, to become so focused on the things that we have lost that we fail to see how God is at work in the midst of it. And to encourage you, brothers and sisters, I have seen God at work in immense ways in the last month. But it's just a, a caution that if you're like me, one of the things that can happen is we become focused on what's right ahead of us. And we need that reminder to look up 
to see what God is doing, to see the work of Christ, and to join him in his mission. And so what's Jonah 4, 1 through 11 about? Opposition in our hearts to God is opposition to God's purposes. But Jesus brings redemption. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you. We thank you that by your grace and mercy in our own lives, you have brought us from death to life through the person and work of Jesus Christ. We pray that you would help us to have hearts of faith that are aligned with your purposes and with your mission. When we struggle with opposition in our hearts to you, would you forgive us? Would you help us to see our circumstances as opportunities to trust you? As your word would say in Psalm 77, that in those moments, we can look to you and believe that you led your people through the waters, but your footprints were unseen, that even when we can't see what you're doing, we can trust you. Would you help us to that end? Empower us by the Holy Spirit to repent of our selfishness so that we might embrace the beauty of the greater Jonah, Jesus Christ. We pray in his name. Amen.